Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Hello, this is Stephen Adams, GC Senior Director in the GC office in London. I'm here today with Alex Dawson and Joe Armitage from GC's Whitehall and Westminster team. And we're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so trying to make sense of the process of electing a new leader of the UK Conservative Party, and probably by implication, a new British Prime Minister. Um, guys, let's start just by uh, taking stock of the ways in which this context is likely to be triggered in the days, weeks, well, potentially hours ahead. Alex? Well, the... The first um, issue is that Theresa May has said that she's going to resign once she passes the withdrawal agreement through the House of Commons. Uh, at the moment, it feels that that passage of the withdrawal agreement is quite a long time away, potentially. Uh, and if, it, if it happens at all. If it happens at all, which poses a real challenge for people who want to get rid of Theresa May. Uh, she won a confidence vote in December last year. So really that confidence vote process then comes back up uh, and becomes legitimate again to challenge her in a no-confidence vote under the current rules. But just explain to us why the fact that she won that vote in December in terms of the current Conservative Party rules is important. Well, under the current Conservative Party rules, it provides a year's immunity from challenge right. for the leader of the Conservative Party. Which runs Party. until December this Which year. runs until December. I think it's the 12th this year. However, there is a move currently going on this afternoon, potentially, by the 1922 committee, and that is the committee of backbench MPs in the Conservative Party, to try and change the rules to allow Theresa May to be challenged before December. And really, if that occurs, that means there will be a majority of the Conservative Party in the uh, UK House of Commons who will want to see her gone, in which case we could, we could be looking at a much shortened timescale. But I think in terms of the leadership race, the problem that uh, contenders are having to deal with is that they don't know when this race will actually begin and even then that's before we get onto the timetable of how long it's going to spend uh, being kind of contested amongst the MPs and then how long it's going to be uh, out in the uh, party in the country and are we going to be looking at a race that takes six months are we looking at a race that takes three months are we looking at a race that, like 2016, takes three weeks? Right. So, But just practically, so either the Prime Minister essentially succumbs to pressure from her party to stand down uh, you know, in, the, in, in the short term. Potentially, of course, if she manages to, five, to survive until December, then, uh, you know, barring a change in the rules, that's the earliest point at which she can be challenged again by the formal, formal mechanisms. What about the possibility of her being brought, brought down by a vote of confidence in Parliament itself? So not, not under the auspices of... Conservative Party rules, but under parliamentary protocol. So I think uh, the chances of that at the moment are fairly slim. Uh, obviously, you should never say never in the Brexit process. But if people vote uh, for a vote of no confidence in the government in Parliament, that means a general election. Right. And after the, effectively, unless Labour can cobble something together with and it would have to be done with Conservative votes. And it would have to be done with Conservative votes, exactly, because there currently isn't a majority sure. uh, along those lines. And we saw at the local elections last week just how difficult it is for the two big parties at the moment uh, when it comes to facing the electorate. Uh, and I think that is going to be the thing that puts the chills on 
any prospect at the moment of a vote of no confidence. Right, so fear, fear of election probably blocks off that route. That means if this is going to happen, it's going to happen essentially because the Prime Minister has given way to the building pressure yes. for her to stand down. Okay, um, so let's park that. Tell us just a little bit about the process itself. Joe, how does the, how does the process of choosing a new Conservative Party leader work? Well, so at the point at which the Prime Minister announces her timetable of resignation, the 1922 committee will get together and decide uh, at the executive level how the proceedings are going to uh, go forward. And that will entail uh, a series of ballots at the MP level, so Conservative MPs, uh, described as the most duplicitous electorate uh, in history. Uh, they will initially... Sophisticated <laughs> is the way they <laughs> yes, like Sorry, yes, uh, the most sophisticated electorate in history. Uh, they'll initially uh, whistle down uh, the candidates who, who run, and at this stage it's easier to say who isn't running uh, than, than who is, uh, but they'll whittle down the candidates uh, to two. And that just takes uh, place through a series of sequential ballots. That's, yeah. yeah. And, and, you, and anyone can run that? Uh, you have to be nominated by two. Right. Uh, but again, these things are actually determined by the executive of the 1922, so they could say you have to be nominated by ten. Right. Uh, but, but it's probably going to be two. Uh, and say if you have ten candidates running, uh, last time, and I think the time before, you had Tuesdays and Thursdays of voting at the MP level uh, to whittle down the candidates. So if you've got ten running... Uh, that that could take five weeks uh, of MPs voting on Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, and then you'll have the membership vote on the final two by post, and that'll probably take about a month. Right. So you're, but you're, the implication of your what you're saying is there is that there are essentially kind of two electorates electorates for this process. First of all, the Conservative Parliamentary Party, then the membership as a whole. Yeah. So so they're going to have to play quite a difficult balancing act uh, because you've got the yeah the MPs electorate uh, and they have their own priorities particularly with respect to Brexit and domestic policies because they want to win their seats uh, and then you have the other electorate which is about 150,000 odd Conservative Party members uh, and they actually have slightly different preferences in politics to the Conservative members of Parliament in terms of their position on Brexit, they're slightly more pro-Brexit and prepared to countenance a no deal. Uh, and on other areas like fiscal policy, uh, they differ slightly in that they'd probably want to reduce spending at the state level more than Conservative MPs, because again, you know, Conservative MPs have seats to win uh, and that doesn't go down well. Uh, and in terms of, sort of the role of the state, uh, sometimes Conservative party members have different views to the general Conservative MP on how big the state should be on social issues, you know, how, how involved should it be in the issue of marriage, you know, uh, gay rights, etc. Uh, and then also the size of the state generally. So should it be 30% of GDP, should it be 40% of GDP, etc, etc. So the candidates will have to play quite a difficult balancing act because they might well do well at the Conservative MP level, uh, but they might have blown it before they get to the membership if their messaging doesn't really tally with what the membership thinks. Right, okay. Well, that, I mean, let, we'll come on to talk about the messaging and the themes, but just, just one protocol question. Um, you make the point that the first stage of this process is probably going to be managed through a series of sequential votes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, 
and, and obviously that will how many candidates will then dictate how, how long that takes. The, the process of going out to the membership, is there any minimum period of time that will have to take, or do we have any sense of how long it's likely to take? Uh, no, again, this will all be set out by the 1922 um, uh, Select Committee, uh, committee sorry, um, and they will probably insist that it's postal vote. I can't envisage that it will be online voting given the average age of a, a Conservative Party member, um, and just the practicalities of uh, printing out 150,000 odd postal votes, uh, sending them all by Royal Mail, presumably first class, um, and then having them filled in alongside the candidates wanting to have sufficient time to set out their prospectus as, as, as a, a potential prime minister and future leader of the party. Um, yeah, I, think, I think a month, a minimum. Um, right, but the, the important thing there is that that's a description of how the change in the leadership in 2016 didn't work. It wasn't an extended process of the kind you've just described. Now, Alex, you were closely involved with that 2016 changeover. What lessons do you think have been drawn from that earlier experience? And what are those lessons like to mean for the way the party's going to try and manage any leadership change next time? Well, I think uh, the the nature of the leadership contest that sort of saw Theresa May becoming prime minister was that it was in the immediate aftermath of the European uh, referendum, which had seen the UK vote to leave. And there was a period of sort of shock uh, at the decision that the country had taken. Uh, and it was the very kind of start of those ruptures in British politics that we've probably seen over the last three years or so, which ended up with probably Theresa May's main challenger, uh, in the end not standing, having been taken out by his campaign manager, uh, which then ended up with a sort of uh, two campaigns which actually had uh, have to quite quickly sort of find uh, their, their messaging and their arguments against each other in a way that they hadn't really quite expected between Theresa May and the now leader of the House, Andrea Leadsom. Um, uh, Andrea Leadsom, having not really sort of probably expected to be in this position, ended up having to withdraw early that then meant that a lot of the arguments that Theresa May was going to make was going to make about changes that she wanted to make to the party and to the country, a change in direction from the kind of Cameroon era of modernisation, so-called after David Cameron, mm -hmm. the Prime Minister that she, she was seeking to replace, um, weren't actually bedded in. They didn't really win the consent of the party by dint of the fact that she didn't have a majority. It also meant that her approach to Brexit, which would have been set out in greater detail uh, over that summer, wasn't tested with the party. And we're in a strange position in the UK where if you one party changes its leader when that party is in power in Westminster, you're electing a prime minister for the whole country, those 150,000 uh, Conservative Party members or so. And a longer election campaign would have allowed more stress testing by the press, by the media, of the various positions would maybe have made the, the Brexit negotiation easier. Now, in terms of what this means for, for this time, I suspect for a long time there's been little element of denial about whether this is going to happen or not, um, because no one really likes to plan their own, their own departure. Uh, I think if the Conservative Party wants to try and build a, a majority within itself and something that may be able to win in the country, 
uh, when it comes to a general election in what will be three years' time at the very latest, it would do well to uh, you know, spend a bit more time actually in the leadership campaign now, hammering out what it thinks on both Brexit but also on areas domestic policy such as Joe highlighted, fiscal policy, role of capitalism and the role of the state. Uh, especially 10 years on from the financial crisis. But it seems what well, it, it seems sort of inevitable that this contest is going to be dominated by, by Brexit and by the, can, the, the positions of candidates on Brexit. I mean, to what extent do both of you think actually that this is going to be a contest in which wider aspects of policy are actually fleshed out and materially debated? I think, I think it depends on the juncture which they come into office as Prime Minister. Um, if it is after a Brexit deal is miraculously uh, passed, uh, then that will be to the advantage of people like Jeremy Hunt, uh, of people like um, Sajid Javid, who would want to set out a domestic Why? Prospectus. Just explain why. Because if it is not passed, it will advantage people like Dominic Raab and Boris Johnson, who know that the membership uh, is, is very pro-Brexit, anti May's deal and anti the prospect of cross-party talks with Labour. And so if a deal hasn't passed, uh, let's say uh, the Labour Conservatives cross-party deal, if that does not pass uh, or is even agreed, uh, it will advantage Dominic and Boris because they will be able to say to the many Conservative MPs who are pro-Brexit in the ERG etc, that they will try to renegotiate the backstop uh, by default, pursue a no-deal Brexit, etc., etc. However undeliverable those things are, they'll probably resonate with a significant number of Conservative MPs and then and the members. Conservative membership. Yeah. Uh, and it will almost be a slam dunk for the Boris Johnsons and the Donald So a leadership, con- con- a leadership contest after a possible passing of the deal takes the no-deal with respect to the withdrawal agreement question off the table. Yeah, it right. leaves on the table, of course, the question of the future relationship, but in some respects that's a, that's a less acute it's a less question, and, question. question. And, and it doesn't necessarily lock the candidates into having to take positions on things like revising the backstop where they may simply be undeliverable because of the, EU, yeah, I mean, the so EU's position. There's, there's only so far you can go in being Eurosceptic once the withdrawal agreement has passed, effectively. Um, and you know we will remember when David Cameron ran against David Davis David Cameron was the modernising candidate in 2005 but he felt that he had to take a more Eurosceptic position on the Conservative Party's membership of the EPP uh, in order to to win that election that was probably quite an important thing with the uh, grassroots members of the Conservative Party and I think for uh, leadership contenders who are maybe a little bit less Brexiteer than uh, than some of their competitors, they will want to make sure that actually that kind of avenue of uh, being arched Eurosceptic is kind of taken out of the equation. Right, which passing yes. the deal would, would do. Okay, but that's still two variants of the Brexit argument. W- what about the wider policy argument? I mean, you, 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 Joe, you flagged this, well, you both now have flagged this question of where the Conservative Party comes down on the role of capitalism, the nature of capitalism, the future of capitalism, and clearly that's a question which implicitly the Labour opposition under Jeremy Corbyn is offering uh, you know, a fairly well-defined answer to, and the question of how the Conservative Party tackles that is key. So what, 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 
to what extent do you think that's going to be an issue in a, in a leadership context? So I think it was quite interesting over the weekend we saw a number of cabinet ministers come out and set out their stall and have interviews with various newspapers etc where a lot of the policy that was discussed was a little bit of well this is what we need to do on Brexit but a lot of the time they were trying to draw on what they wanted to do in terms of domestic policy uh, so Matt Hancock talking about social care Dominic Raab talking about cutting income tax for example and I think it's because uh, everyone recognises that at the moment obviously the, the Conservative Party needs to solve Brexit and provide a solution to Brexit but they know that if the uh, election is purely on um, uh, against Jeremy Corbyn is purely on Brexit or not well this is what they ran in 2017 and it didn't end so well right, for them right. and they realise that they need to renew their popular appeal in terms of the domestic agenda, nine years after a Tory government first came into Downing Street, after you know, a period out in the wilderness. Um, and so I suspect, actually, there will be a little bit more discussion of domestic issues in this leadership campaign. Um, but whether it ends up being a really tangible kind of argument, whether it ends up being something that actually um, wins legitimacy and consent for an individual is another question. Because Where do you think um, well, both mem- MPs and members would like the party to go on questions like the role of capitalism, equitable capitalism, state and market? I, I, think, I think they'll, they'll want to see a defence and a proud support of uh, capitalism. Whether that comes down to However, backing disruptors over established players uh, is is kind of, I think, the, the question at hand. And I think typically there'll be a lot of talk about tech and uh, new uh, new media for kind of capitalism, but not necessarily actually a, 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 a radical change in terms of policy. Yeah. Uh, because I think fundamentally uh, a lot of the candidates don't really want to end up tearing down uh, monopolies for example and they want to kind of they will want to be fairly clever about it and they will want to kind of try and use uh, consumer power for example to drive change so we're not going to see I don't think uh, any candidate kind of quickly coming out and saying actually we should really renationalise the water industry Um, and I don't think if they did do that they would gain much support but what they will do is they'll say what we need to do is take power away from uh, those big, big companies. I mean, that's quite interesting because one of the themes running through Labour's, both Labour's 2017 manifesto and the subsequent kind of evolution of Labour policy has very much been its rooting in this idea of a kind of citizen worker. And it, if, if the Conservative Party was to sort of start fleshing out a kind of a, a more developed theory of the sort of citizen consumer, that could actually be quite an interesting area of policy space between them. And it's kind of where Theresa May tried to go, but I think there's there was a problem with Theresa May that it was kind of dressed up as something that was a little bit old-fashioned, I think, a lot of people felt. Yeah. And so you'll end up having a lot of people, you know, Jeremy Hunt, for example, is talking about how he set up a tech business, sort of dressing it up in modernity and, um, uh, you know, sort of digital, etc. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it will be as much about kind of empowering the citizen and the worker, but without recourse to trade unions, without recourse right. to very... Yeah. Uh, heavy state intervention, right? And Jay, I mean, Joe, you flagged the kind of some of the social policy questions that might be in the mix here. I mean, to what extent do you think both the MPs and the members want to see a party that chases Labour, perhaps, on 
social liberalism, or are they looking ultimately for candidates who are going to uh, be willing to plant their flag in the other direction? Uh, well, I think generally there is acceptance at the sort of MP level, particularly uh, that you're pursuing uh, quite sort of socially um, out of touch issues. Um, is not really the way to go. You know, they've legislated for things like gay marriage. Um, they've tried to embrace sort of environmentalism a bit more than the party once had. Um, and so I think there's definitely a recognition that the party shouldn't go backwards in that sense at the Conservative MP level. But equally at the membership level, and, and Alex touched on the 2005 leadership race where the members had a choice between David Davis and, and David Cameron. And actually there was a recognition at the membership level that the party should move on after having lost uh, sort of three elections in a row and a series of leaders who were actually quite socially conservative. Uh, there was a recognition that actually the party had to change its ways. Right. And I don't think uh, the party membership will necessarily want to go back uh, to sort of more socially conservative principles and expect that in a candidate. Uh, and indeed, the candidates have you know, already started to make clear uh, that on sort of social issues, they are not going to be doing well, and, that. and this points to an important demographic issue for the party as well, right, which is that they're chasing a very large, well, they, they arguably need to chase, a large cohort of younger voters who appear, partly as a function maybe of the Brexit debate, partly for more structural reasons, to have drifted away from the Conservative Party. I mean, to what extent do we, do we expect to see that demographic in the kind of tactical mix for candidates? I think at the moment you're sort of seeing a lot of candidates trying to be all things to all people. It'll be interesting to see how much that changes. One of the big debates in Conservatism over the last three years, ever since the Brexit vote, is how much should the party be pursuing Cameron-style modernisation, which is sort of, you know, upper-middle-class, Notting Hill set, etc., etc., kind of, you know, people wearing white shirts with their buttons undone, top collar, um, or whether it's... Like uh, all of us. Listeners <laughs> cannot see that well, Alex is wearing, <laughs> wearing a white shirt and a button. <laughs> Full shortage Tory, um, but uh, or whether you're trying to look for a more white working class kind of vote is what it's characterised as, uh, so slightly older and in places where, for example, you know it's Mansfield, it's parts of northeast. But that's important, isn't it? Because isn't that a demographic that 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 latter demographic, the you know, I mean, the the, the blue collar conservative, mm. who uh, briefly the Conservative Party appeared to be offering in the Brexit context, something that they hadn't been able to get from any other part of the political spectrum. To what extent do you think there's an appetite to try and hang on to those blue-collar voters? Well, I think this is what is occurring with the Brexit party at the moment, is making Conservatives... That's the risk, right? Yeah, I think, well, you know, what's going to happen if we lose these voters who came to us over Brexit? But in order to try and uh, hold on to those voters who came to them over Brexit, or try and win some of them back from Nigel Farage, Nigel Farage right. actually how much are they going to have to change their domestic policy yeah. because this was the part of the problem with the 2017 election campaign for the Conservatives was that they were appealing to those voters in terms of Brexit but then they were offering up um, policy agendas that actually looked like the sort of thing that those voters didn't really like so there wasn't for example a really really clear vocal commitment to even more spending for the NHS for example which was the other part of that yeah. uh, vote leave campaign in 2016 uh, and, and that's something that the leadership contenders are all going to have to think about. And 
you know, I think sort of for, for Boris Johnson or Dominic Raab, if they're going to pitch themselves as uh, as moving towards being more kind of uh, trying to win back those heartland sort of heartland might might be the wrong term here, but you know those votes in uh, parts of the north, parts of the Midlands that didn't really ever vote conservative before. How much are they going to have to change the party's domestic pitch? Uh, you know, when people are voting on issues such as uh, welfare, the environment, public services, those other issues that are really. But don't you think the 2017 May manifesto started to dip its toe in those questions? I mean, that was very that was part of the Nick Timothy pitch. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. I mean, it definitely tried to, but it's it's uh, you know there was a question of whether it managed to do so in a way successfully, and or whether actually. It's a feature of that type of politics that it ends up losing you a load of votes potentially in suburban South England, right. places like Putney, Bedford, etc. Um, or whether it was just the execution was botched uh, and therefore it was an unsuccessful campaign right. uh, where they just didn't win enough because of an and issue. Overwhelmed by care. the social care issue. Exactly. Yeah, right. I mean, I think, I think on this point about age and demographics as well, Candace needs to remember that the vast majority of people in their later years vote conservative, whereas it's the complete opposite for the vast majority of people in their younger years. And so if they start uh, trying to capture the voters uh, that are in their younger years, it may well be at the expense of those in their older years. As I say, there are more of those older voters, and indeed those older voters tend to vote. They have an annoyingly consistent habit exactly. of voting. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, so they, they need to be quite careful about that. And there is a perception that some of the candidates might be sort of stuck in the sort of metropolitan sort of bubble uh, and not quite recognising the true extent of the role that demographics plays in, in this race. They need to be careful that they don't abandon the existing voter base uh, in, in pursuit of a new one uh, that might not actually ever come on stream. And that okay. with no one. Okay, right, guys. It's money on the table time. Um, your picks for a final two, Alex. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, well, I don't ever bet on politics. Okay, I, don't, I don't really bet. So All right, let me rephrase the, the question. I mean, who, but I, look, who, are you, who are you watching? I think you're going to... The conventional wisdom is that there's a race to be the Brexiteer on the candidate and there's a race to be the uh, Remainer on the final two. Um, I think currently the top two Brexiteers are Boris Johnson and Dominic Raab, and you'd argue that they're kind of fighting in the same same territory. Uh, on the more Remainy side, the, the names most often mentioned are uh, Jeremy Hunt and Sajid Javid. Uh, now, obviously, and this is the big caveat here, and this is why I shouldn't be putting any money on it, Conservative leadership. Well, they've, they've both been fleshing out their Brexiter, pragmatic Brexiter credentials. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, because it's going to be an important part, the, yeah. important part of the race. Um, it's, you know, it's the top priority for Conservative Party members. You don't, yeah. don't expect it. Uh, but the, uh, I, I think, sort of what everyone in the Conservative Party sort of folk wisdom is that uh, he who wields the knife never wears the crown, and the front runner never wins. So at the moment, actually, but isn't that isn't that just an extrapolation from one leadership race? Uh, well, Thatcher. I mean, uh, well, Heseltine Thatcher, but also um, uh, John Major. Obviously, in the actual kind of campaign itself, and came through the came through the middle. As did David Cameron. And no Margaret one Thatcher, and Margaret Thatcher. And, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and before that, it was just kind of a sort of a collection of wise men in suits. Um, and Theresa May, frankly, two months before 
the leadership election in June in July 2016, I don't think you would have gotten very good odds on her becoming the yes. next prime minister. Well, the, arguably, it was the electorate that wheeled them out in that. So, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So, all right. So, the, the, Joe, would you um, any, any quibbles with those kind of putative front runners? No, I think I think that's definitely uh, logical. Um, I think, as you've alluded to, there's always potential for a dark horse candidate uh, to sort of come through the middle as all of the other candidates are tearing chunks of flesh out of each other, um, and almost a sort of blue Peter candidate. Sort of here's one that we prepared earlier. Um, I'm not sure that we can easily identify those sorts of people in, in this race because there are so many people uh, in in this sort of curtain raiser part of, of the race who have already indicated that they want to, to run for, for leader. Um, but I think yeah, there, there are some that are not really mentioned, uh, like, like Mark Harper, for example, the former chief whip, uh, others who are more public, uh, like Johnny Mercer and Tom Tugendhat, uh, who are sort of dipping their toe in the water and seeing you know, whether anyone bites. Um, but I think the received wisdom is that it's probably going to be one of the names that Alex mentioned. But what about the other kind of, at this stage, relatively high-profile runners? So Michael well, Gove or Penny Morden? Some of those, you know, so say, say Penny Morden, the, the new Defence Secretary, or Liz Truss. Just, just been handed a big new platform. Yeah. Exactly. Got a tank yeah. to ride on and if now. you look at her Twitter, you know, she's already doing sort of campaign Trump-style videos. Um, but if you, if you look at those sorts of people, it's often the case that they'll run, like Liam Fox has done for the last sort of dozen races. <laughs> um, they, they'll run uh, in order to promote themselves and then hope that Forget the new that. prime minister will promote them yeah. uh, in, into, a, into a bigger role in, in, in the cabinet. So you've got to be wary of that. Because the thing is, the breakdown of authority within the Conservative Party gives actually everyone an opportunity to think, well, actually, maybe I could... Maybe I could do it. And yeah. you've got to be in it to win it. So what, at the moment... Well, as, as Joe says, there, there's a big suite of uh, consolation prizes yeah, as well, exactly. potentially. Uh, so. You know, which obviously makes this uh, really quite an interesting um, time for British politics, especially when you look at the whole suite of domestic policy at play, as well as what happens in the Brexit debate, whether it's a try, try again, again, renegotiate the backstop, and then if that doesn't work, go for a no deal, or... You know what it comes to in terms of the next stage of our, you know, the future trade talks with the European Union and potentially right. with other parties. Right. Um, and I think really that the country would be served by a longer, more detailed explanation and exploration of where these individuals actually stand on these issues. Um, otherwise, it's going to be very difficult for the Conservative Party. It's going to be very difficult for the country to um, move forward with kind of confidence and certainty. Right. Uh, what its future looks like. Right, so, well, as you guys have both made clear, we don't know when the starting pistol is going to be fired, although it could be as early as this afternoon, about tea time. Um, but a race, once it does start, it's going to hold up an interesting mirror to the Conservative Party and ultimately going to hold up an interesting mirror uh, to the larger Conservative electorate in the, and, and the country. Yeah. Uh, you can um, read both Alex and Joe's work uh, on this subject and much more on the Global Council website, which is www.global-council.co.uk. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. <laughs>